Welcome back to the Oxford Comment. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michelle. We have a special episode for you, a two-parter on religion, but not just about religion, uh, about discussing religion and attitudes towards religion. Looking back at this past year, we've noticed that religion was a really big uh, topic for everybody. And that may seem like kind of a strange thing to say, but if you think about it, um, we had midterm elections, and of course, religion always creeps into politics here in the United States. It's also been a, a topic brought in front of the Supreme Court once more. And this year, it even uh, entered the sphere of urban planning, as many of us saw if you were following the debates regarding the so-called Ground Zero Mosque. Uh, just this past October, Michelle and I had the opportunity to attend a debate at the 92nd Street Y between infamous writer and atheist Christopher Hitchens and Muslim scholar Tariq Ramadan, many of whose books have been published by Oxford University Press. Uh, the question of the debate was, is Islam a religion of peace? And Michelle, you had the opportunity to go behind the scenes and get some exclusive interviews. Yeah, I did. And I put together some highlights from the evening and would like to share them with you all. The face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. These terrorists don't represent peace. They represent evil and war. In her opening remarks, our moderator for the evening, Lori Goodstein, recalled the words President Bush proclaimed to the nation six days after 9-11. Then, it was largely seen as a move to protect Muslim Americans. But now, nine years later, many accuse Bush of succumbing to political correctness. I had the opportunity to speak with Goodstein. You may know her as the national religion correspondent for the New York Times. And I asked her about the big question of the night. Is Islam a religion of peace? When this event was set up, it was not the explosive issue that it has had now become. It was set up like a year ago, right? It was set up, I'd say, eight months ago. And in some ways, it seemed that the question had died down a little bit. But after all the debate this summer over the Ground Zero Mosque and the burning of the Quran, and then arrests of certain um, you know, would-be terrorists um, and uh, some uh, you know, allegations that people are planning other things, it's as though the question is front and center now. And I agreed to do it when I did agree to do it because it's a question that I have and that I want answered. And who better to ask than, uh, than these two? So I was very honored to be asked to moderate. On the one hand, you have Christopher Hitchens, who is an opponent of every religion there is. It will not come by the fanatical adoption of a man-made text and a man-made supreme leader. Nothing but war and tyranny has ever come from the adoption of formulae like these. The and then on the other hand, you have Tariq Ramadan, who is a um, modern Muslim and who is explicating Islam for the Western world that is right now very confused. For example, coming from a, a, a religious viewpoint, I wouldn't say Islam is a religion of peace. I say Islam is a religion for human beings. It deals with peace and it deals with violence. And it helps the people to go from violence towards peace. It's a way towards peace. I wonder if you could mention anything the United States has done in Iraq that is remotely as criminal 
as sadistic and as violent as the blowing up of the mosque of the Golden Dome in Samarra. Throughout the debate, Hitchens pushed Ramadan on the question of authority in Islam. Where is it? Where is the authoritative statement of moral outrage in the Sunni world saying this is not acceptable behavior for followers of the Prophet? I missed it. Yes, I acknowledge the fact that there is a, a, a crisis of authority in Islam. But please, don't tell me today that you didn't hear the Muslim voices around the world criticizing and saying this is unacceptable to kill the people in the streets in, in New York and the condemnation was widespread by the scholars. If you don't hear... And Ramadan argued that there are many Muslim scholars condemning the violence and that in fact it was his own public outcry that got him banned from the United States in 2004 when he was supposed to take a teaching position at Notre Dame. It wasn't until this past January that Secretary Clinton lifted his ban. By the way, I was banned from this country mainly for that, are saying, for example, that the Palestinian resistance is legitimate. And I said that and I repeat this here. But I also said that the means used to kill innocent civilians and innocent Jews in an Israeli, in Israel, I cannot accept that. Have you heard that? I said it. After the debate proper, all three participants sat down and had a discussion of the topics at hand, taking questions from the audience and listeners via satellite. Goodstein had some questions of her own, including this one for Hitchens. A corollary question, would, maybe it's just a, a, something funny. Would, would atheism be a non-religion of peace? No. Somewhere here. <laughs> no, if, if there's something probably very slightly intolerant about atheism, at least so I hope. I should, I might just say though, because I, I really think Professor Ramadan misunderstood me. When I say the American Constitution is godless, I mean, I was quoting the title of a famous study of it by Professor Israel Kramnik. What I mean by that is to say, the US Constitution only mentions religion and God in its preambles when it means to say the ways in which they must be kept out of the public square. That happens to be a fact about our Constitution and the reason why we still have it. Otherwise, the Republic would have been destroyed long before. And that its First Amendment says that religion can be no business of the government a statement no Muslim society could begin to make. Thank you. But once again, once again, you can just refer to the Constitution and you will have Muslims just referring to text and avoiding the practical uh, uh, um, consequences and sometimes the policies that are promoted in, in one country. And remember that the previous president, George W. Bush, was talking when going, not for the same reasons as you, or not from the same source, because you were uh, supporting the war in Iraq, but he was doing it in the name of God. So the Constitution here is not preventing someone from within to speak in the name of God. After the debate, I had the chance to speak personally with Hitchens and ask him about his dialogue with Ramadan on God's influence in the United States. Well, I think that may be one of the very few occasions where Professor Ramadan misunderstood me. Uh, the United States has a secular constitution that deliberately doesn't mention God in its provisions and uh, only mentions religion in order to restrict it. And there is a famous book by a Professor Israel Kramnik uh, called The Godless Constitution, which I hope people would get the reference to. Is, is America, in fact, a godless country? Self-evidently not, but that doesn't matter because 
you can only get the guarantee you can only get the guarantee of religious pluralism, which is at its most profuse in the United States, if you do have a constitution that doesn't allow the government to intervene in religious matters. I also had the chance to speak with Ramadan and ask for some of his thoughts on the debate. He reiterated one of his arguments of the evening, that the problem with the Quran is interpretation, and he used Hitchens' own Marxist background as ammunition. Uh, he was quoting the Quran and saying the Quran is the final word of God for the Muslims. I said, the problem is not the book, the problem is the reader, is the way you interpret. And, and you, you can have, you know, even with Marx, and he was a Marxist in his previous years, you can just come with a very literalist understanding, a very narrow understanding of the text. It's your mind which is a problem, it's not the text. And in Islam is exactly the same. The Quran is the final word for the Muslims, but you have people coming with a very wide uh, horizon and they are able to deal with diversity and others that are coming with very literalist uh, interpretation and narrow understanding of the text, no contextualization, no historical understanding, and this is problematic. So Islam is as complex as Christianity, Judaism, and even Marxism. The evening began with the question, should President Bush have declared nine years ago that Islam is peace? Both Hitchens and Ramadan shared in their answer to this one. And you guys both acknowledged tonight that you didn't think the question the debate was centered on was actually a good one? Well, I think it was a good enough one to draw an audience, because everyone knows the reference. I think almost everyone remembers President Bush's remarks. And they were not disowned by Muslims at the time, those remarks. Indeed, they were accepted as a friendly remark. So I thought that the President was wrong to say that even if he was right in his motives. And it seemed, from what I heard, that Professor Ramadan didn't think he was right and didn't welcome the remarks. But I'd, I'd have to be word for word sure what he said on that point. When uh, George uh, W. Bush, the president, was speaking about Islam just to protect himself from being accused of being Islamophobic, say Islam is a religion of peace, it doesn't mean anything. In fact, it's Islam is a religion, as all the other religions, dealing with human beings, and we have to deal with violence when you deal with human beings. So you have to educate yourself to know how you master your inner violence and your uh, social violence, and it's all a process of educating. And I said uh, that from an Islamic viewpoint, it's all about how do you educate yourself to go from potential violence to concrete and practical, uh, peaceful way of life. And thank you so much. <laughs> After the debate, I was curious to hear Post's thoughts from my coworker Nick, who was also in the audience. Nick's entire family is from Iran, and he actually has a great uncle who was prime minister back in the 20s. Nick isn't a practicing Muslim, but his grandparents who helped raise him were, and he considers himself to have been raised in a Muslim household. I asked him if he wouldn't mind sharing some of his reactions to the debate, as well as his family's history, and he kindly agreed. All right. Is it recording? Uh, yeah. I want you to pretend that we don't sit next to each other every single day, and that this is a real interview. Can you take it seriously? Well, yes, but if I mess up, can we re-record, or is this like one time, is it? This is it, Nick. Seriously? Yeah. Um, all right, so your perspective was changed after 9-11, and you said that the debate kind of articulated everything you went through. Can you talk about that? Um, this actually, this debate uh, was the first time that it was presented to me in this format, but it's something that I had been 
dealing with ever since basically September 11th. Um, and yeah, that you know, after September 11th, I really had to kind of look in the mirror because I almost saw myself as a different person um, based on how other people saw me. I, I grew up in a very uh, waspy suburb of Columbus, Ohio. And there was definitely, you know, remarks here and there. Some of them were joking, some of them not so much. But I came to realize with the help of my parents and, uh, and my grandparents that, you know, after an event like 9-11, you have to realize that there is going to be a lot of hatred, but that's a natural human reaction. Um, if there is no hatred, then you have to face the pain of what happens. So I had to, like, realize that that was, you know, kind of expected being Middle Eastern American. Was, is there a specific incident that you can talk about? Well, I, I played uh, I played soccer uh, in high school, and when I was playing in the game, um, there was a lot of taunting in the crowd from the other team. And not to boast, but the best way to handle that, I think, was scoring goals or winning the game. So um, that was kind of my revenge. <laughs> and at times it worked out better than others. <laughs> so going back to the debate, um, would you say that you side with Ramadan in that it's not the religion that's the problem, it's human beings, and that human beings aren't innately, <clears throat> excuse me, are innately peaceful? Yeah, I, I think, uh, to be honest, I, I, I agree with uh, both men on different issues. Um, and yeah, I think uh, completely just you know, looking at it as objective as possible, which is tough for me, um, you know, Islam can be uh, unconditionally a religion of peace when I look at my grandmother. Um, but then I also look at the events on 9-11 and I'm like, wow, you know, it also is a religion of violence if it's interpreted in a certain way. But I agree with uh, Hitchens in the sense that, well, every religion is like that. It's not just uh, the religion of Islam. So, Why did your family leave? Well, my parents first uh, left Iran because, um, fortunately, my grandparents had the foresight to understand that uh, an education in the U.S. has a lot more validity than an education in Iran. Why is that? Um, you know, that's just where a lot of the top universities were. If you could speak English um, at the time, it was an uh, enormous asset. Um, kind of the pecking order was, can you speak English? Yes. If you can speak French as well, it was great. Um, and it really lined up a job beautifully in Iran. So my parents came to the U.S. Uh, for, for college and were planning on going back. They met in the U.S., were planning on going back. But uh, once the revolution occurred, they ended up staying here in the U.S. Uh, and settled down. And... Um, yeah, it's pretty crazy to think that if it weren't for the revolution, I'd be living in Iran. <laughs> and what happened during the revolution that, de that deterred them from returning? Well, they basically just saw their country um, kind of uh, more or less uh, blowing up in front of them. And they got a lot of support from my grandparents to stay in the U.S. because my grandparents were seeing firsthand what was happening in their country. And they knew that the future wasn't looking bright. What was happening? What were they seeing? Uh, just, you know, religious fundamentalists coming in, promising change, but 
basically they had a, a mask on their face and they knew that behind it was was not a pretty picture and uh and um I, it's it's an interesting story to hear my grandmother speak because when uh Khomeini first came back from France and entered Iran um and promised uh, all this change um everyone was applauding it uh and was really excited for it but um my my grandmother knew from day one that this wasn't going to be a, a a pretty picture and uh even my grandfather um was telling her no you know i i believe him i think it's going to be a healthy change and um unfortunately for the people of iran uh my grandmother was correct what was he promising um you know he was promising a lot of different things some of the things to be honest he he came through with uh a lot more um rights for the poor uh they provided electricity running water um paved roads to go to a lot of these small towns that before um you know the islamic fundamentalists came into iran they didn't have any of that and unfortunately for a lot of the people in iran uh this new regime that took over they they're smart you know they understood that a revolution won't occur when uh the lowest of low classes are satisfied and appeased with what's going on and it's generally a lot of those lower classes that fully lean on religion to help them out and um because at times education uh is not as highly valued in those areas um they see religion as like an end all be all and would you say that most of the people in Iran now support fundamentalism? Do they want separation of church and state or not at all? I think uh majority of people that I come in contact with are, you know, middle class to upper middle class and you know, it's pretty unanimous that they are not happy with the current regime, but again, the regime understands that and they know that middle class and upper middle class uh people within Iran are not going to risk losing everything to revolt against them it's the people that have nothing that are going to revolt against them and they're kind of seeing how far they can take it and you know honestly they took it too far and you saw that backlash of the youth uh a few summers ago when they were basically like enough's enough um but i think that it's important to notice that there's just a fundamental difference between the cultures within the west and within Iran the Persian culture personally i don't think they want a complete separation of church and state but i don't think they want anything like the levels we're seeing today i think it's really clear from Nick's family's story that religion is oftentimes tied up in matters of uh government certainly as we heard in the Hitchens Ramadan debate there's a question out there of whether or not it's possible to have a quote godless country. The American Constitution, of course, points to a separation of church and state, uh, but many times it can be confusing as to whether or not this separation actually does exist. Um, the idea of the United States certainly was that people should have religious freedom and that there should be tolerance, um, but this is also a difficult concept sometimes, especially when we get into politics. We have an author here at OUP, uh, David Sahat. 
He is an assistant professor of history at Georgia State University, and he's the author of The Myth of American Religious Freedom. We were lucky enough to have him in New York City, and he stopped by the studio to explain to us exactly what these myths were. There's three major myths that I, that I talk about. Uh, the first is the, the liberal myth, the myth of church-state separation. And um, the idea here is that the First Amendment uh, separated church and state, that this was the product of the design of the founding fathers, especially Jefferson and Madison. Um, and what I argue is that uh, that couldn't be true because the First Amendment didn't apply to the states uh, before 1940. And so uh, at least the religion clauses didn't. And so okay. as a result, states could do any number of things. Um, they could pay churches, as uh, many of them did uh, when the First Amendment was passed. And uh, they would continue to do so for 50 years uh, or so, some of them. Uh, they could prohibit blasphemy. They could uh, require uh, people to pray or do Bible devotions in schools, um, all of which happened through the 19th century. Okay. Um, and this, uh, this myth of uh, separation um, kind of leads into the second myth, which is the myth of religious decline. And um, a lot of people have pointed to these past uh, things and said that uh, that may be true, but the, um, the, the nation has changed over the last two centuries, and so um, the religion really isn't relevant in public life. Uh, oh, but okay. that also isn't, isn't true, that's a myth. Um, that historical demographers and sociologists have shown that in 1776, only 17% of the population belonged to a church. Uh, wow. And then after the Second Great Awakening, it had increased to 35%. Um, in 1906, it was a simple majority of 51%, and then uh, 62% as of uh, 2000, though not churches, just religious institutions. So um, because evangelicals led the religious expansion, uh, religion has become more important um, in public life uh, rather, rather than less. Um, but this doesn't really uh, aid religious conservatives, um, and this is the third myth, the myth of exceptional liberty. And the, the idea here is that um, many people have claimed that uh, the United States has uh, an exceptional liberty that makes it um, uh, a beacon of freedom to the world, and that religious liberty is at the core of this. Uh, but Throughout American history, dissenters in the United States have, have claimed that actually Protestant Christians have, um, by their connection to government, uh, held back uh, religious believers that didn't believe in Protestant Christianity or didn't believe in anything at all. And foreign uh, observers of the United States have constantly said, Americans, they constantly claim that they have this religious freedom, uh, but actually they're one of the most intolerant countries uh, in the West. So. Those are the three. Do you have a few examples that illustrate our intolerance? Yeah, so um, someone like uh, Victoria Woodhull, the first uh, female candidate for president in the United States. And she was a, um, a spiritualist, meaning that she, she um, was a spirit medium to the dead. So people would come to her and want to meet their aunt or, or, or their, their grandmother uh, who, had, who had passed on. And so she would channel these spirits. Uh, so in, in uh, the 1860s, she moved to California, and she uh, was both a spirit medium and a uh, an actress, which back then meant 
more or less that she was a casual prostitute uh, because she had an al alcoholic husband and, um, and two children that she had to support. So she moved back uh, to the East Coast in the 1870s. She fell in with Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was the, the industrialist, and began channeling spirits for him. Um, and then she became the chief spokesman for the women's rights movement. And as she began to gain prominence, people then started digging into her past and realized that she had an unsavory past. Um, and the pressure was so great that uh, she was more or less uh, destroyed. She, she, along with her sister, had used the Vanderbilt money to um, become the first two female stockbrokers uh, on Wall Street, but her stock brokerage business died. Uh, and she wound up leaving the United States in 1877 for England, which she considered a, a more hospitable place for people with her views. So certainly in politics nowadays, you hear a lot about the religious right and that almost being its own political movement. Can you tell us how they kind of, you know, came to be as influential as they are today? So my interpretation of the religious right is that they are the people that in the 19th century had power, um, but that in the 1920s, the Supreme Court began to consider um, that maybe the First Amendment and the entire Bill of Rights should apply to the states. And so gradually from the 1920s to the 1960s, they began applying the, the Bill of Rights and, and especially the first two clauses of the uh, First Amendment, so the Free Exercise Clause and the uh, Disestablishment Clause to the states. And as they began to do that, religious power, uh, Protestant religious power, went into decline. And um, my interpretation of the religious right is that these are the, the folks that um, were very unhappy with the actions of the Supreme Court. And so um, they mobilized to stop the Supreme Court, to bring religion back into public life, and ultimately to keep Protestant power and control. So you can't really understand the religious right unless you understand the long history of religious control in the United States dating back to the 19th century. You're arguing that we don't have the separation of church and state. So why then do so many people think we do? What I argue actually is that we didn't have the separation of church and state, but and, and I guess we still maybe don't, um, but that the Supreme Court began to create it in the 1920s uh, through the 1960s with a series of decisions. And they did so um, to diminish Protestant power. And um, so to a, to a certain extent, we, we still um, don't have a strict separation between church and state. Like if you talk to um, any observant um, French person, they would say, there's all kinds of things that happens in the United States that we would never do in France that show that there's not really uh, a separation of church and state, like praying at the inauguration, for example, or like um, uh, reading the Bible in public settings from uh, uh, that, that have an official state function, or um, you know any number of things that, that you see if you're around public life. But this idea came from... Jefferson, is, of course, originated the idea of this wall of separation between church and state. Okay. But if you look throughout the 19th century, the people who used it most, they were either people who were dissenters like Woodhull or Charles B. Reynolds who wanted um, out from under Protestant power, or they were Protestants themselves uh, who had power. But they said, we in the United States have separated church and state unlike Catholics. Okay. And so there's a long history of the separation of church and state being a, um, 
basically an, an anti-Catholic idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're a Protestant nation, and so we, we've separated church and state, but of course religion and the state are still connected. But the Catholics, they, they don't <laughs> because they're connected. Um, church and state are connected through the Pope. Of course. And um, so there's a, there's a lot of reasons why historically people talked about the separation of church and state, but now we, looking back, might think, well, that doesn't seem much like separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the present, people talk about separation of church and state, uh, I would say primarily because um, they want to make that a reality. So right. when the Supreme Court began uh, talking about the separation invoking Jefferson, they were actually making the separation as they were doing it. Um, and when people uh, in the present, that is often liberals, talk about the separation of church and state, they want to uphold those decisions of the mid-century, mid-20th century Supreme Court. Oh. Um, and that's why you see somebody like Christine O'Donnell uh, saying there is no separation of church and state uh, because she doesn't like the mid-century, mid-20th century Supreme Court cases, and she wants to go back to something like the 19th century Protestant power. And I think uh, on that note about Christine O'Donnell, we will actually wrap this up. Uh, David, thank you so much for coming into our studio. Everyone, once again, that's David Sahat, and he is the author of Myth of American Religious Freedom. Well, that concludes the first part of this two-part series on discussing religion. Next time, we will be speaking with Steve Paulson, who is the host and producer of To the Best of Our Knowledge on Wisconsin Public Radio. It's a very special interview, so look for that soon. As always, thank you to the Ben Daniels Band. And until next time, keep up with us at blog.oup.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, OUPBlogUSA.